Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. He was going into a village. Ten men who had leprosy <coughs> met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. All right. I invite you to join me in prayer. Our God of grace, as we move into this um, time of, of listening, uh, we acknowledge that we, we come as a mixed bag of people from different experiences and places. Different places on the spiritual spectrum, we might come with doubts, doubts that are overwhelming us. We might come having been brought by a friend or discovered City Life online and just trying it out and um, wondering if, if this really is the place for us this morning. We might come uh, looking at you as someone who was close to us a long, long time ago and we wonder if it'll ever be like that again. Some of us come with great thankfulness. It comes easy for us because you've answered prayer. Things have changed recently for us for the better. And others of us come uh, on the, with a fresh experience of difficulty or trouble and grief, loss. And amidst all these different places, the truth is we're still all the same in one crucial way. We're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We're more broken and fragmented than we want the person sitting next to us to know. And your story that we are rehearsing today, your story tells us you move towards broken lives. You draw towards us before we've even considered drawing towards you to bring broken and fragmented lives home and put them back together. You carried the burden of brokenness on the cross in our place so that we can come home. Meet us with that kind of grace and teach us with it. Convince us that it's true this morning. We pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. A very unusual way to start today. On um, the Sunday before the Super Bowl, January 26th, I'm going to start with Thanksgiving jokes. Uh, thanks, this is uh, Irma Bombeck. Here's some, some famous funny people. Irma Bombeck says, Thanksgiving dinners take 18 hours to prepare. They are consumed in 12 minutes. Half times take 12 minutes. This is not coincidence. All right, that wasn't very funny. I, I agree. That's why I started with that one. Stephen Colbert says, uh, Thanksgiving is a magical time of year when families across the country join together to raise America's obesity statistics. Conan O'Brien says, the turkey that President Obama will pardon this Thanksgiving is from California. And the turkey said, I don't need a pardon, I need a job. Um, and Jim, Jim Gaffigan, one of my favorite comedians, he says, uh, I, some of this is intonation, so I don't know if I'll get it right for Jim Gaffigan, but he says, Thanksgiving, it's like we didn't even try to come up with a tradition. The tradition is we overeat. 
And then he's got his little mock voices. How about, how about at Thanksgiving, we just eat a lot? But we do that every day. Oh, what if we eat a lot with people that annoy the heck out of us? <laughs> All right, so that, those are my Thanksgiving jokes. Not just, out, not just out of season, of course. The reason I'm doing that um, is because today is like the perennial um, thankfulness scripture text. And so, um, in a sense, this is a poorly timed sermon. It should have been around Thanksgiving. This is all about thankfulness and, and the intrigue of how grace and the gospel of grace that we read about with Jesus, uh, how it interacts with this issue of gratitude and with our thankfulness. And so we've got a few things that this story leads us to consider. And let me say that the first one, I think, is as we look at the, the, the nine uh, people with leprosy who get healed and don't return to say thank you, as we look at them, we see our universal struggle. Let's look at our universal struggle. You've got these, really these 10 social outcasts who have this skin disease that means they're cut off, banished from community for obvious reasons, quarantined. You know, they, they're forced to stay away. They're forced to hang out with only other people with the same skin disease. And they are restored. They are healed and restored to full functioning participation in community, all ten of them. And we marvel at only one of them comes back. There's nine of them who don't, who, who don't stop and turn around and come back. You can pretty much picture that they're all walking along after Jesus has sent them off and said, go, you're, you're healed, show yourselves to the priest, which was the technical piece they had to do before re-entering as clean folks into society. And as they go back to do that, one of them is seeing the healing, and they're probably all seeing it and saying, you too? Me too? Oh my goodness, this is, a, this is ridiculous. This is, we're all being healed right now. And one of them says, I'm going back to thank him. And, and the rest kind of go, well, have fun. <laughs> I mean, you're just kind of wondering what's going on there as that interaction takes place. And as the rest of them just say, no, we're just going to move on with life and not say thanks. Um, have, you ever, have you ever come in, into Thanksgiving or found yourself on Thanksgiving Day amidst um, a pile of food, perhaps, and more than anyone can eat? Maybe someone's even planned ahead and, and went to the store the day before and got uh, containers to send the leftovers home with all the different family members. Have you ever been in that situation? I mean, there's, and, and the leftovers take a week to go through. I mean, there's that much food at the table. And have you ever felt underwhelmed by your own amount of gratitude on that day? I mean, maybe it's just this day where everyone's talking about thankfulness, and this, whatever, this particular day, this particular year, you just kind of go, why do I just, why is it not catching with me? Why am I not in a grateful place? And you just sort of puzzle over not feeling super grateful. I know that's maybe not always. Maybe some of you are shocked that I would say that, but I think that's a normal place we find ourselves. And in fact, it would be right to say that it's sort of a cultural place we find ourselves. The New York University uh, Child Study Center um, has some, has some uh, information about affluenza. Is the wealthy kid a healthy kid? Across the nation, clinicians, educators, and research scientists uphold findings that privileged adolescents show growing rates of school failure, depression, anxiety, and substance use. 
the, the facts are that Americans can earn three times as much as they did 30 years ago. Technology has opened a world of resources to children, and parents are working in excess to provide opportunities exposing our children to the good life. Yet a generation has emerged where adolescent psychological problems are escalating and teen suicides have doubled. John and Eileen Gallo, experts in psychological issues related to money and family health, find that financial security can lead to lack of motivation in youth. Excessive freedom to learn and explore may lead to apathy, laziness, or failure to commit to and achieve goals. Providing too many interesting opportunities may lead to overscheduling and activity overload. Overexposure to the finer things in life can lead to overindulgence and attitudes of entitlement. How about you? It's not just kids, right? Where has entitlement crept up in your life lately? Are you aware of your own sense of entitlement? Are, how about spiritually speaking? Does that at all define your interaction in the interplay between, in the, the ongoing dialogue between you and God? Is there a sense of entitlement you bring? Probably, if you're honest. We all have it. We could look at this story and we could say, we throw up our hands and say, what kind of person, <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of people, these nine who don't come back to say thank you, who could do such a thing? And the truth is, it's people like you and me. And we're not alone. Go back into the Bible. It's people like the ancient Israelites. One of the, one of the most uh, humorous and yet not funny stories of the Bible is when the ancient Israelites cry out in their slavery and oppression underneath one of the strongest powers in history, Egypt. And they cry out and God answers. And without an army, without horses, without chariots, without resources, they, they get free of Egypt. Their, Egypt's army is destroyed in the end. They go through the Red Sea somehow and they've actually plundered and taken all the treasures of the Egyptians. And so after this awe-inspiring answer to their prayer, this gift of freedom after... 400 years of oppression, they get out into the desert, it gets a little difficult, they don't see how the next, where the next meal is going to come from, and they start grumbling, they start saying, who's this Moses guy that you put in charge of us, he just wants us to die, God, what have you done, bring us out to the desert to die, let us go back to Egypt, is their, is their thing they end up asking God, let us go back to Egypt, at least we have food there, they say, this is how we are, this is you and me. There's a story that uh, came out several years back of uh, South Africa. It's a fab- fabulous news story. A South African man surprised nine men robbing his home. Eight of the robbers ran away, but the homeowner managed to shove one into his backyard pool. I love that. After realizing the robber couldn't swim, the homeowner jumped in to save him. The Cape Town Times reports that once out of the pool, the wet thief called to his friends to come back. Then he pulled a knife and threatened the man who had just rescued him. The homeowner said, We were still standing near the pool, and when I saw the knife, I just threw him back in. (laughs) But he was gasping for air and was drowning, so I rescued him again. He says, I thought he had a lot of nerve to try, try to stab me after I had just saved his life. Friends, isn't that a picture of our journey with God? In some ways, some of us, sometimes we need to be pushed back into trouble 
to kind of be reminded of this, you know, treating God basically like our assistant rather than our rescuer. That's what it comes down to. And gratitude, as you can see, gratitude becomes really a a good barometer, a key key, uh, indicator of whether or not the penny of the gospel has dropped for you. And you've transitioned from God, my assistant, which allows you to stay in control, to God, my rescuer, drowning without your help. And and we wonder why it's so hard. I think someone said it well last week, answering the contact card. I just love this. Um, Let's see if I can find the right piece of paper here. They said, um, the question was, why is it difficult to be grateful for grace? Someone says, because our culture says that we are entitled to what we have. Because to be grateful is to acknowledge that we are undeserving. Bingo. If we have to admit we're undeserving, then it, and if we have to admit we need a, not just an assistant but a rescuer, then it means in the end we have to give up the reins. And we have to, the whole thing turns around to where we're saying not, what can I get from you again, but how can my life be embedded in gratitude for how I've been rescued? So we've got to see our universal struggle to enter into this story. And secondly, we need to rehearse God's grace. Let's think about the men who were healed of their leprosy, especially the one man who comes back. This man was, first of all, he's described as a Samaritan. So despite his disease of leprosy, he had, when it comes to Jews, and Jesus is traveling with Jews, there was a distance principle at work anyway. We don't want to associate with you. You are foreigners. You are unclean. This was written into their religious codes, their holiness codes. Stay away from Samaritans as an unclean people who have, um, who have twisted the history of God's people and his Torah. That was pretty much the view. So he's got that going on, and then he's got leprosy, and so he's, um, he's an outcast. He and his other nine friends have been um, put outside of the village. They've been put on the outskirts of society. They are outcasts. They have been set out. And in addition to that, the common theological view for why they had leprosy in the first place was very... Um, condemning and alienating it was it's your fault (laughs) god has brought this on you it must be become because of some sin so you deserve it and so it's these layers of alienation and 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 um really fragmentation from society that are at work in this man's life which makes it incredibly gracious of an experience when jesus without analyzing whether there's guilt involved, without analyzing the fact that this man is a Samaritan, without going down any of the standard alienation routes, Jesus, just on hearing them say, have pity on us, heals them. And he bypasses all the alienation, all the easy ways to put them out, to make them feel once again like an outcast. And Jesus says, no. And once again, we find Jesus 
walking along the edges of society, which Luke especially highlights, walking along the edges, the outskirts, the place where he might run into these kinds of people, and breaking all the rules to bring welcome and grace. This man is having an incredible experience of grace, a humongous experience of grace, a a a once-in-a-lifetime experience of grace. And in many ways, you might say, if you're trying to relate to the story, you might say, yeah, well, you know, that's not what I'm experiencing. Um, And that's true. The truth is that this man, ahead of him, the rest of his life, he has a lifetime ahead of lesser, not as dramatic experiences of God's grace, of just ordinary life, (laughs) trying to recall that experience of being healed, trying to remember that he's got a new lease on life. And how does he go about that? He's, you know, on the one hand, he's exhibiting that one-time experience that some of you have examples of, some of you still wrestle with, why have I never had an experience like that? But he's also got ahead of him the experience of all of us. And this go, let's go back to another answer from last week's contact card where someone says, you know, why is it difficult to be grateful for grace? In the moments that I fleetingly grasp or have awareness of grace, I am flooded with gratitude. The challenge for me is expanding or holding, living in the awareness of grace. I would love to live in that awareness exclamation point that's that's one of the most common things that i encounter as i um, talk to you talk to others about living out your faith it's the everyday you know not big huge flashing lights experience no fireworks And what do you know, but in this story, Luke is careful to draw our attention to a sort of pattern of rehearsing grace. This man has a big experience of grace, but on the other hand, he turns and he he has, what Luke does is he, he, he describes this man in verses 15 or 16 with five different verbs in rapid fire succession within two verses. If you're a literature person and you look at it as a, as a work of literature, which it is, your attention is drawn. You say, ah, there's something here. There's this almost staccato sense of action. Five verbs in two sentences. And what are they? Well, they're really a model for living out and rehearsing grace amidst everyday life. He looks at his healing. He sees it. He looks at it. He notices it. Which really, in a sense, that takes time. You might ask yourself, you know, some of these verbs might apply more to you than others, and, and one of them might really grab you today. How often do you just stop and take the time to look at what it is that Jesus offers you and Jesus does for you? What is the offer of the Christian faith for you? What is this supposed story of rescue? How often do you just stop and say, let me look at that again. Let me look. Um, Secondly, he came to Jesus. There's something very simple about drawing to Jesus, drawing your attention, drawing yourself physically to a place where Jesus is being discussed or talked about, drawing yourself into a private place where you can read about Jesus, pray to Jesus. 
One of the, uh, the other truths of um, interacting with people around their faith that I've seen is that, is that you'll never come up dry in your search for spiritual depth if you are drawing intentionally to Jesus. If you're actually, bless you, if you're actually taking the time and actually doing something to draw to Jesus. In many ways, as I, as I talk to people in our, in our group called Dive that we've done the last two years, I say, I talk about it like just being in the game. If there's something you're doing, I'm trying in some regular basis to connect more with Jesus, there will be some fruit that comes out of it. So he's looking, he's coming to Jesus, and then he's praising God. There's nothing more telling about the gospel connecting with your heart than praising God, because praising God has no self-interest in it. I mean, you can maybe in a religious setting do it for just purely religious reasons or just because that's what you do to fit in in this context you say wonderful things about god but have you ever thought about i mean if you're genuinely doing praising god how how odd it is compared to all the many other things we do in a day because it has it has no self-interest it's basically just giving applause to god for who he is what he what he does his characteristics it's it's a very odd thing to do in, in a sense, it can only be explained by a, there is deep appreciation you've connected with um, God's greatness, his bigness. Something about him has grabbed you. Uh, because you don't get anything in return from, like this man, it says he just, he's going about loudly praising God. What does it say? Praising God in a loud voice. <laughs> in many ways, it's so strange, you know, we have names for people who, who walk around talking loudly to some deity out there. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's so unusual. It means you're connecting with who God really is. And then bow. He throws himself at Jesus' feet, which is to say, this step, <laughs> this step of rehearsing God's grace is the one where you humble your story before God's. Part of rehearsing God's story is to find your place in God's story and to find ways to to realize once again you've taken over the reins. You've put your agenda first, and it's time to give it up. It's time to give up control. It's time to remove yourself from expert mode and to try following the good shepherd. And then finally, he thanks Jesus. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He gives thanks. In all of these things... um, Really, this cycle of things that I just described, these five verbs that become the intentional ways that on ordinary days you can rehearse the gospel of grace in your life, all of them are also part of what we do here. All of what we do here draws towards thankfulness. The word used here um, that he thanked Jesus is eucharistone. We have, during the communion time, a thanksgiving prayer I think it says in the worship guide, prayer of thanksgiving. It can also be called and historically is called the Eucharistic prayer. Um, And another word for the Lord's Supper is Eucharist. Thanksgiving. What we do up here is a reminder and a rehearsal of the great act of salvation, of being rescued from drowning through Jesus. And so we have a prayer in the middle of it called the prayer of thanksgiving, the Eucharistic prayer that walks through the story and we rehearse it. 
And, um, and I don't know if you noticed, but bef- when the scripture reading was done today, did we notice what, what you said together in reply? Thanks be to God. And when the service is done, I'm going to say, let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. And that's the last thing we say before kind of the outgoing song. This is, a, this is a time of entering in and rehearsing God's story. Entering into the story leads towards thanksgiving. So we, we see our universal struggle. We rehearse God's grace. And then, here's the surprising one, we participate in resurrection. What Jesus says to this man at the end is telling. He says <clears throat> in verse 19, Rise and go, your faith has made you well. But what Luke does is he, as he tells the story and, and uses the Greek language to t- retell the story is he uses some first century insider language when he says rise and go. Insider church language because the word rise is a resurrection word. He's making an, a link um, to us and to his first readers to remind and to point everybody towards where Jesus' life goes. He's showing us this man as a person who's one of the first persons living out a resurrection outlook. Rise and go. Live as a newly born person. And he has all of our minds fast-forwarding to where Jesus' life goes, where Jesus is banished himself to the edge of town where Jesus becomes the the leper, the outcast, sent outside the village and treated like one who is unclean and given the judgment of an outcast, of one who's guilty. And he takes that on his shoulders for all of us who fear being alienated from God. He takes utter alienation. He's cut off not just from society, not just outside the town. He's cut off from God when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And right there, Jesus takes the place of the ultimate leper. And then he rises in new life and he's seen on the third day. So that all of us, right along with this leper who's healed, find that we are given new life, that we are rescued from any sort of alienation from God through his alienation, and then we are given new life in this broken world through his resurrection. We enter in to Christ's death and his resurrection as those who shouldn't even have a place in either. And he makes us rightfully God's children, just like this Samaritan outcast. So the Samaritan becomes a model of one not who, who just who's thankful and who enters into the cycle of rehearsing gratitude, but also one who lives out resurrection hope. And then you see this, this story. I mean, you could, come, you could think about a friend or yourself coming to this story and saying, I wish I could have some healing. Why hasn't God healed me in this way or that way? This is not just a story for those who have miraculous healings. This is also a story for those wrestling in a broken world to see some kind of new life that's possible and believe in it. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the resurrection way of life becomes all of our way of life. When he rises from the dead, he punches 
a hole through the concrete barrier between the actual of this world and the new future that he's creating through Jesus. And you and I, all of us, as we live our lives of gratitude, the ante is set pretty high because not only are we asked to enter in with gratitude and have grateful lives for the gospel, but also then to have lives of hope and renewal in a very broken and dark world where people do have diseases that aren't healed. And to walk amidst the pain and the brokenness with a unique but inspiring resurrection outlook. I had a distant uh, uncle pass on a letter that he did some research uh, in family archives in the Netherlands and found a letter that was written um, by one of my relatives when she first moved over, um, came across the boat in like, you know, the, it looks like the 1870, somewhere around 1870. Um, and this is what she writes. Her name is uh, Nina Gerharda Eskis. So she traveled from the Netherlands, and now she writes back to some of her neighbors. Highly and respected and beloved friends. Now, my dear and beloved neighbors, the Lord God has laid it upon my heart to write some letters back to you. Our family is, thanks be to God, healthy and vital right up until now. Which is an interesting thing to say when she has what follows. But beloved, I need to also tell you the sad news that I have to say goodbye to my only and most beloved daughter on the large ocean. The sadness, as you can probably understand, is unbelievably great. I cannot describe to you what a wonderful child she was. I held her hands as she died. All the days we were on board, she said nothing about feeling ill, but on the day before she died, she complained of being extremely tired. I suppose that her death was coming. She says, she follows by saying, Our long trip over here was not too bad. The Lord was with us, and he knew our way. I cannot thank and praise him enough for that. Someone might cynically look at a letter like that and go, She's nuts. That's just that's disingenuous. She's not being real. How can she give thanks to God on the front end and the back end of saying, I just lost my one and only daughter? And how can she write this letter saying, thanks be to God? Friends, that's resurrection. That's a resurrection outlook. That's someone who's realized that this hole in the concrete barrier between this life and the next has been broken through Jesus coming out of the tomb and is looking with earnest in everyday life through that hole and saying that's what Christians do. Henry Nouwen says, to be grateful for the good things that happen in our lives is easy, but to be grateful for all of our lives, the good as well as the bad, the moments of joy as well as the moments of sorrow, the successes as well as the failures, the rewards as well as the rejections, that requires hard spiritual work. Still, we are only grateful people when we can say thank you to all that has brought us to the present moment. As long as we keep dividing our lives between events and people we would like to remember and those we would rather forget, we cannot claim the fullness of our beings as a gift of God to be grateful for. Let's not be afraid to look at everything that has brought us to where we are now and trust that we will soon see in it the guiding hand of a loving God. Can you live that way?
in this man, we see not just someone who's thankful and has an experience of God, but we see someone who also enters into the rhythm of rehearsing the story of God. And then we also move into seeing that he's someone who has a resurrection outlook. And Jesus seems to be saying, you're part of the resurrection community. He's a model on all fronts. Rise and go are Jesus' words to him and to us. Let me just close with how N.T. Wright puts it. The gospel resurrection stories end not with, well, that's all right then, nor with, Jesus is risen, therefore we will rise too, but with, God's new world has begun. Therefore, we've got a job to do, and God's spirit to help us do it. The job is to plant flags of resurrection in amongst the tired slogans of idolatrous monotony, Oh, sorry, idolatrous modernity and destructive post-modernity. Our job is to plant flags of resurrection in a broken world. Let us pray. Our God, we pray to you and we ask for your help because to experience your grace, to rehearse it and live in it, and then beyond that to even understand or comprehend what it looks like to be agents peering into a new creation because of the resurrection, looking through the, open, the opening of an empty tomb into a new world that you are creating with hope. It's so mysterious and so difficult for us to even grasp. So help us in our weak faith to, be, to, to embody the gratitude we need, to rehearse it together faithfully in community, and then give us signs of healing and great encouragement that we may see glimpses of new healing and of new resurrection at work as your spirit does them among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.